Hello, I'm Monsignor Jim Lasanti. Today, I'm personally speaking, I'll be joined by New York Times reporter and best-selling author Joe Drape. Joe has written a new book called The Saint Makers. The subtitle is Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. Please stay with us. Welcome to Personally Speaking. I'm your host, Monsignor Jim Lasanti, and Joe Drape joins me now. Joe is an award-winning reporter for the New York Times and has been writing about the intersection of sports, culture, and money since coming to the New York Times in 1998. He is the author of six books, including the New York Times bestsellers, American Pharaoh and Our Boys. Joe's latest book is titled The Saint Makers. The subtitle is Inside the Catholic Church and How a War Hero Inspired a Journey of Faith. The Saint Makers takes us inside the modern-day process of the making of saints. Joe offers a front-row seat to the Catholic Church's saint-making operation, which in many ways has changed little in 2,000 years, and examines how or if faith and science can coexist. Joining me now to help us understand a centuries-old system of deciding who is truly a saint I'm very pleased to welcome to Personally Speaking, the award-winning New York Times journalist and author, Joe Drape. We're talking with Joe Drape about his great new book, The Saint Makers. We're delighted to have him on, as I've mentioned in the introduction. Joe has been for many years a sports writer, uh, both at the New York Times and in books that he's written. But this is kind of a switch for Joe. This this book about uh, making saints focuses especially on Father Emil Capon. We're going to talk about him specifically. But Joe, let's go back in time a little bit. Uh, how were you raised in terms of faith? What kind of family did you come from? I'm always intrigued by family of origin. What kind of family made Joe Drape the man he is today? Well, Monsignor, I was parochial educated at Christ the King and on Baltimore Catechism in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, white shirts, blue ties, blue pants. And from there, I went <laughs> on to Rockers High School, and it's a Jesuit school in Kansas City. Uh, one of five kids, my parents were older, uh, very much into the Catholic community. My father very proudly served on the Knights of Columbus. He was part of the building committee that erected the rectory and the gymnasium and basically built, helped the Monsignor Carney at that time uh, build his parish from the ground up. And it was always put into us that, you know, we are a community you know your neighbors, you treat your neighbors not only like you want to be treated, but realize they have the same authority over you that your parents do when we're not around. So it it was a tight Catholic uh, culturally and with a big emphasis on character. Let me ask you, Joe, when you were growing up from your family and from the community that formed you, uh, did you know about, were you familiar with Father Emil Capon even growing up? No, Father Capon I discovered in 2008 when I was living in Kansas, Smith Center, Kansas, working on a book about a football team that was in the midst of winning 67 games in a row. And what uh, attracted me there was not only the winning, but the fact that 
their whole point was never to talk about winning, to love one another, and to get a better, a little bit better each day. And it was a farm community. And through those folks, I learned of Father Capon. I learned of the devotion they had for him, you know, the prayer cards that they worked, and just the fact that they related to this son of a farmer who was very resourceful, very stoic, uh, very comfortable in his own skin, much like I found those people out there when I lived there. And it was a great experience. I moved my wife and my then three-year-old son down there. And so that's the first I ever heard of him. And it basically stuck with me, Monsignor. Uh, 2015, uh, one of the editors in one of my earlier books said, you ought to think about doing something outside sports. And that was the first thing that came to my mind. So, you know, you got to believe God's plan was somewhere where it worked to where I would carry this curiosity for seven years and then uh, get presented an opportunity to try to make something of it, to, to write about it. Uh, Joe Drape is our guest. We're talking about his book, The Saint Maker. You know, I, I mentioned to you once before, Joe, that I've had a, a long-term friendship with the writer Ray Carrison. And uh, I, I was struck by the fact that he hasn't written many books, but one book that he, he wrote was about Bishop Walsh from uh, In your case, you haven't written a lot of books outside of the sports world, but uh, this Father Amos, something about him, also, wasn't just something you repeated because you heard about him from others. Something in this man touched you. I'm wondering what there was in Father Amel that touched the heart, the soul, the mind of Joe Drape. His everyman quality. And, you know, that's what I discovered in reporting out the work, the book, Monsignor, is, you know, saints are not only people you should aspire to in a life, lead lives that you imitate a virtue, but they got to be relatable to you. They've got to be somebody that makes the impossible trying to be good a little less so. And with him, this was just an ordinary guy, uh, grew up with a brother, isolated on a farm, was smart enough, but no rocket scientist, decided early he wanted to be a priest, decided early he was going to put effort every day into being good and recognizing more importantly, good in other people. And, you know, he wasn't flashy and he just had this air strength. So when he gets to the military as a chaplain or when he really finds his calling as a pastor to soldiers, uh, he's all of a sudden to become the superhero that we want our saints to be. And it was not by any, you know, daring do of, uh, of, you know, great talent or luck. It just, he decided he was not going to leave any man behind. So he jetted around the battlefield and rescued people. He he decided that no matter your fate, he was going to be there to listen to you, to lift you up, to support you. And then when he got caught, when the whole, uh, his whole battalion got caught by the Chinese soldiers and taken on this miserable death march for months in the snow and sub-zero temperatures and where the Chinese were trying to shoot the wounded just because they didn't want to deal with it. Uh, he again found this faith and this example to lift them up. And sometimes it was carrying a guy. Sometimes it was building stretchers so two other guys could carry a wounded soldier. And, you know, when he finally got them to the prison camp, he was the guy that 
made people see the humanity in each, each other and to keep their spirits up to say that someday we will get out of here. Mm-hmm. I, I can see where he'd be a, a truly an inspiration to any of us. What an amazing man. And, uh, but like you say, normal, down to earth, regular in so many ways. Um, one of the things our listeners should know, Joe Drape in this book obviously focuses so much on Father Emil Capon, but uh, also gets into, for a lot of us uh, who don't know how it happens, how uh, people get made saints and, and how long it takes and what's the process. Uh, Joe, a few years ago, I was on a show, I think it was Fox News, could have been Newsmax, but whatever it was, they asked me the question, it's been nine years since uh, John Paul died, now he's a saint. Do you think it's premature? And uh, I said, yes, I did, that there's a reason the church takes her time in making saints, and we don't know everything about the pontificate of John Paul II, and there might be some uh, difficulty later on. And in fact, uh, I didn't mean to be prophetic, but my God, after the McCarrick report, you know, you do wonder how wise it was to move so quickly. Studying the process of making saints as you have, uh, is, there, is there a wisdom to taking a lot of time to do it? Uh, absolutely, Monsignor. I mean, the average time from death to canonization is 81 years. Now, that gives a lot of room for some thorough investigation. And it is a very rigorous approach when it's done on an organic timetable. Uh, there are scholars involved from all over the world, first in the historical relevance of a candidate's cause, then the theological, theological. When it gets to miracles, there's doctors and scientists, you know, Nobel Prize winners, really brilliant people who have to investigate and see if indeed a recovery or a uh, back to life was, uh, uh, you know, achieved without any medical explanation. So, you know, that gives the whole place a lot of room to breathe. Now, I, I found it interesting, and, you know, some of the revelations I walked away because like you, I knew there were saints, but I didn't really know how it happened. And, you know, two quick ones, St. Christopher, who is a, I have, he's my confirmation name. I have a medal. He was a saint that never really existed. He was a a giant of legend who was a fairy master who allegedly carried the baby Jesus across the river and, did it under a great struggle. And Christ said, this toddler said, Hey, I was so heavy because you're carrying the world on your shoulders. <laughs> so, you know, that, that was one thing I found out. And then the more modern twist to that is John Paul II was such a rock star in the church. He really is responsible for the modern saint making machinery. He was a evangelical guy by nature. He liked being out. He liked, traveling. He traveled more countries than his predecessors combined. Yeah. Uh, he would like, though he had a trip to Ecuador and he'd go to the causes of the saints, say, hey, do we got anybody Ecuador? I could beatify or, or canonize. Because he understood the power and the marketing of a relatable saint to certain parts of the world. So, you know, he really, he did 464 saints. And I mean, that's more than his nine predecessors did put together. Mm-hmm. So this was some, this was somebody who really bought into the, you know, the power of saint making and was such a charismatic figure in his own right. I mean, they were, and I'm going to but- butcher the uh, Italian, but on the day yeah. of his death, they were out in the gates saying, make him a saint now. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, th- those are things. And I guess probably, 
that's a little warning the divine gave us to pump the brakes a little bit on yeah. you know <laughs> i think you're right and uh, unfortunately uh, maybe some time is necessary for all these these interpretations of the holiness of a life or as you said in your book monsignor robert sarno saying we have to require that there's a genuine and consistent holiness of life um i want to ask you uh, get more about your skill joe uh, f- for our readers out there and listeners uh, when I read the Saint Makers, uh, I usually read a couple of chapters here and there, and I put a book down, come back to it next month. But it was easy for me to read through the whole thing. You have a wonderful writing style. I mentioned that with Dean Coons in mind. Dean said to us when he was on the show that he had decided to go into engineering, and the day of his graduation from high school, an uh, uh, English literature teacher pulled him aside and said, I hear you're going to college for engineering. And he said, yeah, I am. And she said, that would be a terrible, terrible mistake. That's not your gift. Uh, Joe, you have this great ability to write and to write well. Why is writing your mode of expression? Who encouraged you to do it? When did you know I have a gift, I should use it this way? Well, I put it all on my parents. Every morning, Kansas City was a two-paper town. So the Kansas City Times was on the table in the morning, the Kansas City Star at night. Sports Illustrated came to the mailbox. We all (laughs) over who got it first. I'd stay up and read with a flashlight under my blanket until they found <laughs> the Jesuits. The first, my freshman year, Father Dave Bishop made us do every day a vocabulary test on 25 words from the New York Times magazines, 500 least used words. Uh, we read Mallory, Le Mort de Arthur. We read the classics. And then my mother, I don't know what I did. But like when I was 13 or 14, I did something in the summer that earned me a stern grounding. And instead of, you know, sidelining me, she said, you're going to read the great books. And I don't know if you remember it. The great books were like a a little collection in a box. Mm -hmm. And it it was the jungle book. It was 20,000 leagues under the sea. That's right. And, you know, I spent the summer reading those. So, you know, I had no clue what I was going to do when I got out of college. And I, I got to say, I had an English degree and my emphasis was in creative writing. And I had a very smart professor who had dabbled in journalism and was a novelist. And he said, you know, you see things and are able to tell things a lot better than most. And that may be your gift is to chronicle the world through your vision rather than creating new worlds. And you know, next thing I knew, I'm working 6 to 2.30 in the morning for 6 bucks an hour at the Dallas Morning News. And the <laughs> and my journalism career is off. Isn't that amazing? God. Um, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about your paper, the New York Times. Uh, I'll put it in this context. Um, one of our guests was an actor named Brian Darcy James. And one of the reasons I asked him to come on the show was in the New York Times, where they have the thing on what do people do on Sundays? Uh, he talked about the fact that his Sundays always begin him and his daughter and his wife by going to mass. And to be honest with you, of all the actors from movies, TV and Broadway that I've interviewed, very few of them are practicing any formal religion. So I was struck by that. Uh, I mentioned that because when I said to some folks, I had a guy coming on, namely you, who worked for the New York Times. Oh, they're so anti-religious. But Joe, you're working for that paper. Obviously, you're a religious guy who takes his faith seriously. Is it is it not an overstatement in some people's minds to believe that everybody in the secular press is somehow or another anti-religious? Yeah, no, and that, that's not true at the least bit. And it's a diverse bag. We have all kinds of people with right. different 
face and different degrees of devotion to their faith. Uh, you know, we're taught as a discipline, as a practice, to try to keep most your biases out of your reporting in the sense of uh, be fair, be just, be truthful, be accurate. Now, you know, you and I have talked about this before. Everybody's got biases, and some of it creeps in. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can't really stiff arm all of them. But, you know, we'd like to think that we are very trained to keep them out. Also, and I'm, I'm old school, and this is changing. There's a little internal uh, discussion at the New York Times about the younger people want to advocate more. Uh, the older people are more institutional. I mean, I'm not the story. When I'm writing the stories, I'm not the story, okay? So yeah, nobody, yeah. nobody should really care what I do on Sunday mornings or what I do at Friday nights right, or, right. you know, what I read or anything. So I – try to keep that out of it. And I think it's a credit to, uh, I'll give it to my colleagues is if everybody thinks we hate religion, that means we've done a pretty good job of keeping religion out of our work. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, I like that. I, 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 I have heard about the tension you're talking about that exists in not just the times or other places. Are we advocates or are we news reporters? And, uh, uh, I'm afraid that's the great divide in, in American discussion of journalism. Uh, are you concerned about the state of journalism? You know, we've heard about the, the great hit, all the great newspapers have taken in the elimination of ads because people can't afford them or so much stuff is being done online. Uh, is, is there, a, I'll give you an example on Long Island where I'm at, at one time, Newsday was a great newspaper. They don't have the means to be a great newspaper anymore. Uh, they're basically just lifting stories from other sources like your own. Uh, what's the future of journal journalism as, as a journalist who's made it his life? Do you have hope? I, you know, I have hope that good works can continue to be done, but the economic challenges are, you know, beyond difficult at this point. Pre-pandemic, yeah. it was tough enough. The tech companies had taken over the ad revenue streams. Uh, you know, I came from regional papers like Newsday to uh, Dallas Morning News, Atlanta Constitution. You know, unfortunately, they're a shadow of themselves now, and a lot of friends of mine have lost jobs. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the digital thing is empowering. I think the Times has been given a lifeline and prospered on subscriptions. Uh, you know, if you, our stance as an institution in newspapers, if you do the work of journalism at a high level, people will pay for it. And, you know, High levels are expensive. I mean, we had those folks who did Trump's taxes. I mean, they worked three years on that. Three wow. years and accumulated all these things. We've got people in 40 bureaus all over the country or all over the world. You know, that takes money to do it. So, you know, good work is going to continue. Uh, not as many in the outlets. I, mean, I, I am of the Arab. Newsday, Chicago Trib, Dallas, Atlanta, San Jose, uh, you know, down Charlotte, North Carolina, that there were great regional newspapers that people leaned on. And unfortunately, they're not there yet anymore. Yeah. We're talking to Joe Drape. His book is called The Saint Makers. Uh, just to get back to the personal for a second, Joe, uh, you are supported not only by your work as a journalist, as a man of faith, but also by a great wife and a, a terrific child. Um, how did you meet the wife, and, and why was she with the one? Uh, you know, I the greatest probably recommendation ever. 
my old and first college love introduced me to my wife 30 years ago, 30, 20 years later. Okay. And, and uh, it was, I had just moved to New York. My friend at the time was here and she said, I got a great girl that you should meet. And her name is Mary Kennedy. And she's one and nine from Chicago. And she's kind of got the same vibe and likes the same things you do. And that is, she was actually tremendously right. Uh, you know, we have the great groundwork and the big frame of, we agree on what's important. And once you take that out of the argument, you can just keep moving on and growing together. So yeah. that's when I knew it, it was the right one is that, you know, when we were sitting down getting to know each other, there was no disagreements about major things at all. Isn't that terrific that you had common values and, and you're right, that binds people together for life. And then how do you take those values and make them make sense to the son that you love? Well, you know, you try to be a, do it by example, by being there, uh, by being present when he's in the room, when he's studying, by listening to him and explaining things to him at the dinner table. And then just showing up for things. It's like the Woody, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, right. 90 then a life is filling up and you know if you're if you take the time and make the effort to drive them to a lacrosse tournament at five in the morning which i've done recently uh, <laughs> you know to show up at the school parent teacher thing to, to be a field trip chaperone uh you know to man the carnival booths for the june festival and these are all things that give Mary and I, great joy as we do it, too. I mean, we couldn't think of not doing that. But right. those are the little bits of cement that, you know, you hope they're going to take away. I think I've, I've told this story before. Is my father was an attorney, office, nine-to-five guy, nine-to-six or seven most nights. And he never really missed an athletic game and a, or a club or a performance. And he would move mountains to make it happen. And I remember – track meet and I was just an average track runner way out in Kansas City, Kansas at three o'clock in the afternoon and I look up and there he is in his white shirt and tie on the fence. <laughs> That's great. Yeah and I thought wow uh, you know that that the fact that I still carry that it made an impact then so you know we all do the best you can and anybody who tells you they got the secret to marriage or raising kids or lying because <laughs> there's a million different ways to do it. And there's no right way. Uh, thanks for that insight. Joe Draper has written a book, the Saint makers, you know, uh, some years ago when I was doing a TV show, my guest was uh, Tim Russett of meet the press. And, and I said to him, uh, not knowing God, I didn't know at all that he was in short term going to be going home to God. But I said, uh, if uh, years from now you, you were going home to God, what do you want to be remembered for? And, and Tim Russett said that I was Luke's father and that I never missed one of his games, you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, that's, that's your legacy in the end. The writing is great, but boy, what you leave behind in terms of touching that son of yours life. And okay, I promise I'm going to wrap it soon, but I've mentioned to our listeners that Joe has written The Saint Makers, and, uh, but that Joe is largely a writer for the New York Times on sports. So this is my sports question for you. Uh, just the other day, we were talking to you the other day, but we, we talked first to uh, uh, Galen, uh, Galen Rupp, the uh, Olympic runner. Uh, and the guy is so totally and completely comfortable talking about his faith. And that's been my experience with Drew Brees and Derek Jeter and Mark Teixeira and all these people. 
At the same time, when I interview politicians, authors, actors, it's like pulling teeth to get them to talk specifically about what they believe. What is it, Joe, from your long-standing knowledge of these guys and gals in athletics, what makes them so open about being able to articulate their faith, their belief? They're very comfortable in their own skin, and they are raised in a culture of accountability. Uh, locker rooms are just like boys' schools. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's all men. You are in it together. If you don't do your job, the enterprise fails. Everybody has to do their job. You're spending a lot of time together and seeing everybody in their best and their worst, making mistakes and being superhuman at some points, not feeling well. Uh, they get used to talking to each other. They exchange ideas. I mean, you know, locker rooms, all that kneeling stuff that seemed to divide the nation, whether you believed it or not. I looked at that and I thought, boy, the only guys who aren't concerned are the guys who live in that locker room with, you know, they supported them to do whatever they do. I, one of my books was about West Point and the, uh, Steelers have a, a guy who served in a, a, a Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Villanueva. He's their left tackle. Well, he wouldn't kneel, but he came out and came by himself and stood for the national anthem because it was that important for him when the rest of the team decided to stay in the locker room. Yeah. And, you know, that is the thing, the brotherhood, the, the fraternity, and it could be you know, female athletes, it's the same way. I want to thank Joe Drape for being with us. I, I hope our listeners around the country will pick up The Saint Makers. Uh, Joe's a great writer. He's a natural writer. He's an easy-to-read writer. But he gives great insight not only into how our church works in producing saints, but one particular saint, uh, this Father Emil Capon, who uh, I, I certainly was not as familiar with his story until I read Joe's book. And uh, these are the kind of people of inspiration that that make you believe even more profoundly in the greatness of our God and the amazing capacity people have to live their faith as he did. Uh, Joe, thank you for, for stepping outside your comfort zone of writing about sports and instead taking on this amazing uh, uh, saintly man and writing The Saint Makers. Uh, a great book. I hope everyone will get it and much success and happiness to you, Joe, to your wife and to that great son of yours too. Thank you, Monsignor, and have a great holiday yourself. Everybody be safe, and I really appreciate the time with you. As we end today's program, I want to thank all of you for being with us. If you have any questions or comments about the show, you can send them to me through my website, which is www.CloseEncounterTV.com, all one word, CloseEncounterTV.com. To listen to our Personally Speaking podcast with some of our most recent shows, please go to YouTube and search under Personally Speaking with Monsignor Jim Lasanti and subscribe. Personally Speaking is also available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeart, and Spotify. You can also listen to past episodes by going to www.ollmp.org. Ollmp.org, and you'll get not only recent shows, but also Monsignor Jim's weekly homilies. I'm privileged to serve as host and executive producer of Personally Speaking, our producer is Lisa Jadovitz, and thank you all so much for being with us. We'll be with you again next time on Personally Speaking. Personally Speaking.